This podcast is brought to you by PennyMac TPO. PennyMac is committed to advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, the mortgage industry, and the community, including the promotion of affordable and sustainable home ownership. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC. Equal housing lender. NMLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. So education has to be first and foremost. If we are looking to expand home ownership to my minority communities, which let's just be clear, is advantageous for us as a housing industry. Uh, by the year 2040, which is not that far away, we are going to be living in a majority minority country. That means there are going to be more minorities in the United States than there are Caucasians. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. Hey everyone, I'm Katie Jensen, staff writer for American Business Media. This is Gated Communities, sponsored by PennyMac, where we'll be talking about gatekeeping, redlining, company culture, and how to actually help underserved borrowers. Today we have on Ty Christensen, Director of Government Affairs at CBC Mortgage and formerly the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer. Hi, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you explain um, what is CBC Mortgage and your mission there? Sure. So CBC Mortgage Agency is a mortgage agency located in South Jordan, Utah. We are tribally owned by the Cedar Band of Paiutes and our Paiute tribe is located in Southern Utah, a town called Cedar City. Um, And we offer something called the Chinoa Fund Program. And what the Chinoa Fund is, is a down payment assistance program offered to mostly first-time home buyers. Um, But specifically, we have a mission to expand home ownership to low to moderate income borrowers with an emphasis on minority borrowers, um, those folks that can't ask mom and dad for $20,000 or $30,000 for a down payment. Uh, That's kind of the market that we want to tap into, expand home ownership to those folks and bring them to home ownership through using our down payment assistance program. Uh, To date, we have helped over 35,000 borrowers uh, with their down payment, and we are nationwide. The only state we do not offer down payment in is New York. Wow, that's very inspiring. Can you explain, um, I know we kind of delved into this before the interview, that you have a fascinating family history, and I'm wondering if you could explain some of that to our audience in regard to how your family was able to build generational wealth. Absolutely. Happy to. So uh, homeownership actually goes back five generations in my family um, to my great, great, great grandfather. His name was Henderson Fairbolt. And um, by the age of nine, he was actually in the fields picking cotton. So he was born enslaved. Um, and shortly after emancipation, he moved to a town called Hillsboro, North Carolina, where he became a notable chef there for several restaurants. And he kind of got obsessed with this idea of buying land. Um, so when he passed away in 1902, he owned 50 acres of land and he left a home for each one of his eight children. Um, and that started the trajectory of home ownership in my family. It's always been really important in my family to be a homeowner. Um, every generation has been a homeowner, even my great grandmother. Um, she also lives in Hillsborough, North Carolina. She was not a direct descendant of Henderson. It was her actual deceased husband's grandfather. She refused to be the only person in our family that didn't own a home. So she bought a very small home in Hillsborough for $500. And she was working as a house servant at the time, a widow with four young boys. She bought this little tiny house for $500 on this plot of land in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. Um, but it ended up being quite influential, the plot, the plot that she bought. We gifted some of the land back to the city 
Um, and there's a plaque there for our family now thanking us for gifting the land back over to them to make a park uh, for their downtown area. But, you know, she, she set that example for my, my grandfather. My grandfather set that example for my father. My father and his brother own multiple properties. They have rentals. My sisters and I are all homeowners and my cousins are all homeowners. Um, I'm one of the only people in my family that doesn't have a master's degree. Um, and that is because we have all had the fortune of being able to go to school. Many of us with no student loan debt at all. My sisters and I didn't have any debt for school. My father was able to pay for our education. Um, and that all came through the transition of equity uh, through the generations. Wow. So it sounds like you had a lot of very strong characters in your family. That's extremely fortunate. Does your family history have anything to do with why you entered the mortgage industry or has it impacted the trajectory of your career? You know, surprisingly not. I actually went to college for interior design. <laughs> but after I had my oldest daughter, I was kind of looking for something that I could do remotely. This is back in the early 2000s. And I had a girlfriend uh, who'd been in the mortgage industry for some years. And she said, oh, you'd make an amazing underwriter. You should get your, your degree. So I went back to school, um, a place called Mortgage Training Institute. that's no longer open. But I finished their coursework and got my certification and became a loan processor. And um, in my early days, when I was in retail, I noticed that a lot of the loans I was doing were for white white buyers. Um, I saw very few black buyers come across my desk. I saw even less Latino buyers. And I, I, at first, I thought that that was just kind of an anomaly, maybe because I lived in Utah. Uh, but then as I started kind of digging more and more into it, I saw that the black homeownership numbers were the lowest of all the other racial demographics. Um, and I remember this was years and years ago. I thought that this was completely deplorable. I couldn't believe it because my lived experience had been so different. All of my family members were homeowners. All of my friends were homeowners. Um, and I was from a very mixed racial community. So I, I thought this can't be, this can't be accurate. But as I was doing more and more research, I found it was indeed accurate. And so I dedicated the latter part of my career uh, to doing everything I can to increase minority homeownership uh, for all of our communities of color. Wow, that's inspiring. It sounds like the studies you've read and just the observations you made is really propelled you forward on this mission. Um, undeniable evidence. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the most um, discouraging part maybe is specifically after the Great Recession, uh, we just have not seen the rebound um, in minority home ownership that many of us were hoping that we would. So the minority home ownership uh, numbers were at their peak in 2008. Obviously, all, all demographics fell in home ownership uh, from the years following after, but, but the white community has made up that disparity difference. And they're back up at 73, some reports say as high as 74% home ownership in the white community. Whereas in our black community, uh, we are we are holding at, at 42. And that was an, that's been an increase uh, since the Great Recession. So so quite quite disappointing. Mm -hmm. So you think the the most recent recession that happened 2008 and 2009 is um, the more significant contributor to the gap in home ownership today? I would actually think that the gap in home ownership, the major contributor has to be the redlining effects, right? We got to take it all the way back to the 1930s. Um, and, and while the 19th, we can start with the 1930s with President Roosevelt, he created something called the Home Owners Loan Corporation. I don't know if you ever heard of that before, but the goal of it was to bolster the failing housing market during the Great 
depression. Plan was to refinance homes that white Americans already owned and expand buying opportunities to white Americans that were not in homeownership. Um, the, the acronym for Homeowners Loan Corporation was HLLC, and it initially evaluated over 200 cities in the United States for their mortgage security. I use that uh, term in quotations, right? So the A uh, as cities, right, were lined in green. Uh, in the maps, those were those were considered low risk for lenders. These were predominantly white neighborhoods, predominantly affluent neighborhoods. Then you got the B lines and C lines. But then when you get down to the D lines on the map, those were all outlined in red, and those were deemed to be hazardous. Um, this is where the term redlining comes from. Um, and the HELOC maps and the grades from those maps were adopted by private and public sectors in making their home loan decisions. Um, and then FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, was created back in 1984, 1934, I'm sorry. This offered home buying aid to stimulate the economy, but this aid was only provided uh, to white Americans. So you really have to go all the way back there to understand the, the foundational history of redlining, how those opportunities were afforded to white families. Those families retracted from the city areas, went out into the suburbs, started creating these communities and started amassing equity and transitioning that equity to future generations, right? So now you bring it all the way forward to the Great Recession um, in 2008. So you've got, you know, 60 plus years of equity transition from white Americans to white Americans to white Americans. And many of our black families were not afforded those opportunities. And so when the black Americans started coming into home ownership in the early 2000s and, and high numbers, unfortunately, a lot of those were subprime loans. And we all understand the effects of those loans after the crash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of explain for our audience how these uh, past racist policies that are currently outlawed influence modern day redlining? Because some people might say, well, we don't have those policies anymore. And it's hard for them to see how those effects translate today. So can you give uh, some specific examples? Sure, sure. Absolutely. So if we take, um, let's just take Detroit, right? Let's just take Detroit. Detroit's a great example of redlining. So again, FHJ created in 1934, offered all these home buying aid stimulus to stimulate the economy for that city. So we had white Americans buying homes in large, large amounts, creating these suburbs, right? These redlined suburbs. So people are like, well, okay, wait a minute. That was outlawed in 1968 by the passing of the Fair Housing Act. How are we today in 2022 still experiencing those effects of redlining from 1934? Well, several factors. Number one, when those families that have the opportunity to take that aid package and purchase their homes and transition into suburbia, they created a segregated community. Right. So these were communities where FHA would insure your loan and you were living in an all white community. Even if a black family tried to move into those neighborhoods, FHA would deny their the ability to insure those loans. And so you had white families that were able to create wealth, not only just create wealth, they were bringing opportunity to construction builders to build these massive suburban communities that we're all enjoying today. Well, the issue was the suburban builders wanted to make sure that their homes would be insured by FHA. And so they started literally building walls in these communities. Now, what are these walls? Sometimes they were actual brick walls 
walls between the white communities and the black communities. But moreover, a lot of times they were highways that were separating these two communities, right? So they started building highways and in between the white communities and the black communities. Now, what did this do to home values? It completely tanked the home values in minority communities that were on the opposite side of these highways. These homes weren't being insured by FHA anyway. They were deemed risky, and then they turned into, quote-unquote, slums, right? Lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. These neighborhoods had little to no access to good health care, good food, good hospitals, right? Things that we take for granted a lot in our suburban communities. Well, how is that affecting us today? Well, today, the homes in these communities are still valued much lower than their equal counterparts in white communities. There was a study done in Michigan two years ago that basically took a 3-2 from one street and a 4-2 from one street. So 4-2 is four bedrooms, two baths. 3-2, three bedrooms, two baths. And they compared, you know, brick to stone, um, carpet to hardwood ratio. The homes were almost exactly identical, but the only difference was one was on the black side and one was on the white side. The white home was valued a far higher rate than the black side of the black community. And so we have taken equity and essentially from our black community members by not market valuing at the same rate. And so our black and minority community members are still being disadvantaged because they live in these communities, but they are not able to acquire equity in the same rate. A lot of times they're not able to receive home loans at the same rate as their white counterparts. So we're still experiencing fallout from decisions made 70 years ago. And, and, and arguably, we're going to be experiencing them for, for you know, time to come. I mean, this is, this is showing up in appraisal bias now. I'm sure your listeners have heard uh, there's a new program being unveiled by the government called PAVE that they are trying to automate the appraisal process to get rid of some of these appraisal biases because appraisal bias in our modern day is just kind of another way of looking at redlining. Um, and then also gentrification, which is a massive issue. Um, in our communities of color, um, also another another factor in modern day redlining. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you first get into gentrification, kind of explaining that to our audience and what the issue is there? Oh yeah, so gentrification is kind of a <laughs> kind of a hot topic, right? Mm-hmm. So so in, in its in its pure definition, um, it's the process where the character of a poor urban area is changed by wealthier people moving in and that improves housing, attracts new businesses, but it also displaces the current inhabitants in the process. So now what does this mean when you take it out of its regular definition? Why is gentrification happening? Well, let's see. Harlem is a great example of gentrification. So, so people that were making reasonable sums of money um, we're looking at the real estate market in downtown New York City and saying, okay, this, these prices are crazy. Uh, we need to move somewhere that we can afford a bigger house, a brownstone, something that we can you know, live and grow in instead of pay, paying all these crazy prices for a condo or, or an apartment in New York. And so you saw this kind of like mass exodus from downtown, people moving into Harlem, Brooklyn, another great example, um, buying these brownstones and these previously super urban areas where you had like little old black ladies living, they'd be living there for a million years. The families had lived there prior before, well, maybe not a million years, but you know, <laughs> decades. Um, and um, so you had all this, this influx of money coming into the community. Now, obsessively, this sounds like a great thing, right? You've got wealthy white people moving in, 
I need brownstones, completely fixing them up, having them look pretty. They're bringing in resources, right? Whole Foods is coming into the area because now their demographic buyer is living downtown in these previously urban areas. So Whole Foods are coming in. You've got better access to doctor's offices, hospitals, and the like. But what does it do to the, to the generational renters or even homeowners that have lived in this area, right? So landlords start jacking up the rent. Okay, this is where displacement comes into play. They start jacking up the rent because they can afford to do that because the neighborhood demographics are changing. No longer is this a lower socioeconomic area. No longer is this a quote-unquote slum. Now you're living in a hip, new, trendy downtown area. You've got coffee shops on the corner. Gone are the chicken shacks. Gone are the check cashing places. You've got coffee shops. You've got cute little floral companies. You've got little cafes. You've got Whole Foods and access to fresh goods. Well, all of this, all of this new commercialization comes at a price. And so the renters that were living in these areas could not afford to keep up with the rent hikes. So they were pushed out of their homes um, only because they could no longer afford to live in the communities that they'd lived in forever. And so this is causing a displacement, which is becoming an epidemic across many of our metropolitan cities, Washington, D.C., another great example of this, where you've had generations living in D.C. and now you can't afford to live there unless you're quite wealthy where previously you could live on the outskirts of D.C. Um, and this was considered slummish area, right? This was considered lower socioeconomic areas. But now all of these folks have been pushed even further to the outskirts. This causes problems because now they're further away from their jobs. They're further away from their families. They feel displaced from their communities. Right. I can't imagine the number of issues that come with that, especially if you had a job working in the city and you're getting pushed further and further back from everything that you know. Precisely. I mean, let's just say you used to work as a janitor in one of the downtown office buildings and you lived downtown so you could continue to work via walking or maybe taking the bus at a low fare. But if you're pushed to the outskirts, right, you're pushed out of the city because you can no longer afford to rent there. Now you've got a longer commute to the office, right? Maybe you've got a longer commute to your janitorial job. Maybe instead of being 10 minutes from work now, you're an hour or an hour and a half. What does this mean for your familial relationships? It means you're seeing your family less. It means you're seeing your friends less. It means you're dedicating more time to traveling to and from work. And that's if you're fortunate enough to have resources like a vehicle. If you don't have the resources like a vehicle and you are dependent on public transit, to get you from the outskirts and maybe even the outskirts of the suburbs because you can't afford to live in the suburbs, you could be looking at a two-hour commute on the bus just to get to your janitorial position, right? And this is happening all over our country. And it is deeply, deeply discouraging to people who used to be able to have quick access to their family after a hard day of work. Now you've worked a hard day, you've got a two-hour commute home, and you'll be lucky if you can see your kiddos before the Don't miss the nation's largest show for successful mortgage pros. Originator Connect returns to Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas, August 18th through the 21st. See us at OriginatorConnect.com. It's simply the greatest mortgage conference in the known universe. OriginatorConnect.com. I'm curious, if you were a homeowner in in such a city that was undergoing gentrification, uh, would you benefit from selling off your home and pulling equity out of your home after it's uh, increased in value? Absolutely. But then there's the caveat to that. Where are you moving? 
right? Mm-hmm. If this is all you've known, your family's grown up here, you, you, you're a steward of the community, you know Miss Rosa across the street, right? This this is your community. Even if you can cash out and say you net six, seven hundred thousand dollars worth of equity. Well, look what has happened to our housing market over the last few years. Where are you able to move that is going to be create a sustainable home payment for you that's outside of where you live right now. Uh, A second caveat to that is property taxes. A lot of people are unable to keep up with the increase in property taxes in these gentrified neighborhoods. Your property taxes used to be $2,000 a year, and now you're living in a gentrified neighborhood where everything is brand new and the new hip place to live. Your taxes could could double, could triple, could quadruple. And think of Oakland. Your your property taxes would have quadrupled if you lived in Oakland. Many many people are unable to sustain that type of rate hike, right? If if you just don't have the resources, then you have to move. You may end up renting. You may end up buying something that's very far away from your friends and family and your community. This causes mental health issues. This causes emotional issues. This causes physical stress. Right, which mm-hmm. causes physical health challenges as well. Absolutely. There's a laundry list of latent issues or consequences that come with this. Can you explain how formerly redline neighborhoods that are suffering from a lack of resources are more at risk for health issues in some of the recent studies? It's been really fascinating to read some of these recent studies that have been done in the last 12 to 24 months. They really started becoming a problem that was noticeable. Now, these were issues that have been longstanding, right? Spreadline neighborhoods have been tied to higher heart, heart disease, cholesterol disease, blood pressure issues, diabetes for years. Doctors have known this for years, but where it really became a gleaming issue for many of our Americans was during the COVID crisis, right? You kept hearing on the news how black and brown communities were disproportionately affected by the COVID crisis. Well, why is that? Well, most of these communities they were talking about were previously red line neighborhoods. Again, to my earlier point, these neighborhoods do not have access to healthy food. Right. Many of these neighborhoods are with what's known as food desert. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, mm-hmm. but a food desert is somewhere that uh, a community member does not have easy access to fresh produce. So think about your inner cities. You don't have a Whole Foods there. You don't have um, a large chain grocery store there. You have corners on the market. Where you know, market corners, where you pay, you know, two and three dollars for a single apple. Think about the prices of a banana at Seven Eleven, right? You're not getting produce at these mini marts. Yes, you can get an apple or a banana or maybe you know canned peaches, but this is not the type of healthy food that you and doctors tell you that you need to put into your body. There's no kale there. There's no Swiss chard. Um, you know, these are these are places that are rampant with. Um, restaurants that highly grease and oil their foods, think Chicken Shack, think McDonald's, think Burger King, think cheap and easy because the community members cannot afford to pay higher prices. I mean, so those those food choices directly impact your the quality of your health. And th- that is one reason why COVID was so high in black and brown communities, because our health is not as good because we don't have access to good food. We don't have access to good hospitals, many of the best hospitals. 
hospitals are very far from these communities. Um, just healthcare in general, you know, just going to the doctor is is, is quite a journey for some people, depending upon where they live and their access to to public transit. Um, and then you also have the, the to overlay of many of our quote essential workers. Right, our, our transportation specialists, our bus drivers, our people working the subways and the metros, our the cleaners on the street, the people working in our food industry, all black and brown, majority speaking, um, and all from so, so lower socioeconomic areas that have disadvantages again to healthcare and food access. And so couple that with having diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, cholesterol. All were, co- were comorbidities for, co- for COVID, and you've got the perfect storm in these previously redlined communities. Mm-hmm. It definitely seems like these problems keep building on top of each other. I can only imagine if the industry did more to fix these issues, that they would also latently be solving all of these other issues along with it. So I would completely agree with you. And I think as a mortgage industry, we really need to take a step back and analyze how we are providing access to credit to our lower socioeconomic and our minority communities. Many of our minority community members are entrepreneurs. Um, so they don't add, they don't use credit in the same way we do. And they don't utilize taxes as the same way as a W-2 wage earner. How do we access credit to these communities that are paying timely rent payments and are no more of a risk uh, at not making their housing payment, how do we access credit to them and expand credit to them to bring them into the homeownership fold? Um, additionally, with down payment assistance, down payment is the number one hindrance for most minority families to purchase a home, uh, which is why I'm obviously proud to work for Genoa Fund, where we focus on expanding down payment assistance to our minority communities, specifically our low to moderate income communities, um, expanding programs, DPA programs, expanding grant programs. Uh, grant programs are another great resource for down payment assistance, although they are very limited. Uh, getting the word out, providing education to our minority communities about the, ad- the advantages of home ownership. Um, all things that we can be doing as a housing industry, we're starting to do that a little bit more, but there is much work still to be done. And I'm curious to know if you think that modern day redlining is more of a systemic issue today or if there are just too many bad actors in the industry, because, of course, we read cases of appraisal bias and things of that nature, where it seems like there's a bad actor in the situation. I'm wondering um, how you think both of those um, issues come into play. I feel like one begets the other. So I would say at this juncture, this is definitely a systemic problem. Um, there is There is no two bones about that. And in, while there is work being done to try to course correct, we have almost a hundred years of, of this to make up for. I mean, again, going back to 1933, it's 2022. Uh, this is not, we're not going to course, course correct overnight. We're not going to course correct over a decade. Um, and, and this being a systemic problem, we have to work hard and diligently at it to actually change the tide. Now, having had said that, there are significant bad actors. Um, within the mortgage industry. Oh, and, and, and I think that that was very visible uh, during 2007, 2008. You know, you even go back to 2006 where some of these subprime programs uh, really, really ratcheted up. Um, and unfortunately, many of our minority community members were the targets of a lot of these bad loans. You know, I was in loss mitigation for years uh, after the Great Recession. And if I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times. 
some some person, typically a person of color, saying they told me everything was going to be okay. They told me I was going to have a house, and they didn't realize that they were signing negative negative amortization loans. Right? They didn't have an understanding of what an APR is or what an increased interest rate was. When you tried to break it down to them using just plain language, I was on the phone with many people who would just burst out into tears, thinking that their you know their eight hundred dollar loan payment, which they just got a letter for, that's now twenty three hundred dollars because their interest rate has increased because they were on a damn loan and they just can't afford that and they would they would lose the house I, I, i've heard this story countless times in my years of lawsuit um and you know and i want to say not every originator was doing this um i know a lot of originators i've been in the industry for 20 years a lot of them were taking the time to educate their clients but unfortunately in our minority communities housing education is not something that is typically discussed around the kitchen table um and so we are right for people to take advantage of us Right, exactly. What are your ideas about increasing financial literacy amongst underserved communities and effective ways in which to do that? Is it the broker's responsibility or are there other outlets um, or other resources that they should resort to? So both are true. It is the broker's responsibility, in my opinion. So education has to be first and foremost. If we are looking to expand home ownership to my minority communities, which let's just be clear, is advantageous for us as a housing industry. Uh, by the year 2040, which is not that far away, we are going to be living in a majority minority country. That means there are going to be more minorities in the United States than there are Caucasians. Um, and we need to, to tap into this group uh, because this is where our economic future is, right? So we have to really focus on educating our minority borrowers going into these communities in a very meaningful and grassroots way and laying foundational education about the benefits of home ownership, the benefits of equity, how to transition that equity, when the right time to refinance is, talking about credit, all these things, right? A lot of that falls on the broker's shoulders. But there are initiatives out there that are focusing on going into these communities outside of broker relationships and bringing this education forward. Uh, we at Genoa Fund have two minority initiatives that solely focus on educating minority communities about the benefits of homeownership. Our UHOUSI initiative, that's U-H-O-U-S-I, uh, focuses on increasing education about housing and the Black and Brown community and the millennial community specifically. Uh, we partner with faith-based leaders in the Black community bring education to the congregation by going into churches um, and talking about the benefits of home ownership. We'll bring in a local real estate agent. We bring in a local loan officer. We meet with people on site and pull their credit, explain to them what a credit report is, explain to them any of the derogatory items that are on their credit report, really work with them in a meaningful way. And then we can partner them with the how to prove counselor as well. We have offer all of those um resources on our website. We have another initiative called Connie. Um, as I stated before, we are owned by the, the Cedar Band of Paiute. Connie is the Paiute word for home. So our Connie housing initiative focuses on increasing home ownership in the urban Indian community. Um, and so there are, there, I mean, there are thousands of initiatives that offer um, these services for free, really trying to get people very comfortable with the home buying process, educate them. Look, if you've never bought a home before and you are from a, a generational renting family, there are a lot of things that you don't know. I mean, at Chinoa, we get calls all the time and 
you know, from first-time homebuyers that are the first-generational homebuyer, which is very exciting for them. But there's a lot of things that they just do not know. Like, um, when, when are my trash cans going to come? Because, right, if you've been a renter for your whole life, your landlord provides those for you. They don't realize that they have to set up services with the city. Um, little, little things like that, that kind of seems silly when you've been a, a, a generational homeowner. But if you've been a generational renter and your refrigerator goes out, you've seen mom and grandma and great grandma call the super. Uh, you know, it, it is a, this is a responsibility that you are taking on yourself. Um, and with, with Chinoa, we do offer pre and post purchase counseling. And I know a lot of other mortgage companies are starting to offer this as well at no cost to the borrower. Uh, Chinoa partners with HUD approved counselors. Um, and we have pre purchase counseling that is mandatory for all of our lower score, lower FICO score borrowers. Uh, so they can really understand the gravity of what they are taking on through homeownership and also have a trusted resource to turn to if and when they come up to any challenges, be them financial challenges or physical challenges with the property, they have a, they have a resource to reach out to that they are comfortable with. Uh, because in our minority communities, let's just be clear, we have suffered a lot of financial trauma and there's a lot of mistrust there, mistrust in banking, mistrust in mortgages. And so we want to do our part to to rectify that. So we, we partner uh, with a HUD approved counselor that speaks with all of our lower FICO score borrowers with pre-purchase mandatory counseling. And then all of our borrowers enjoy 18 months of post-purchase counseling uh, with a HUD approved counselor. Again, someone reaches out to them monthly, they're able to make that connection able to work through any challenges that come up and they have that as a trusted resource to help them along the way in their home ownership journey for the first year and a half. So education is paramount uh, for all of our housing sector to take very, very seriously as we come into this new wave of borrowers that will need our assistance. Wow, that's really interesting, especially what you said about financial trauma. I bet a lot of people haven't really thought about that before. Um, It's outlined in the PAVE task force that you mentioned earlier that we need more diversity in the industry just to connect with our borrowers. Do you think that would help the trust uh, relationship? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, let's just be clear here. People want to purchase a home and you're making a major, probably the largest financial decision of your life. You want to do that from a trusted resource. And if you are a minority community member, you're going to want to do that from someone who looks sound and has your same life experience because you will feel like this person truly understands you and the needs of your family and the needs of your community. And so it is very, very important that we hire diverse employees in our housing sector. Not, And I'm not talking just C-suite employees. I'm talking mid-level management, entry-level management, right? Training up people that are diverse, that are going to go into our communities of color, go into these underserved areas, and not only just talk the talk, but know how to walk the walk, because they've had these same life experiences before. And unless and until we can do that in a very bold, meaningful, and large way, uh, we're going to struggle. Absolutely. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, especially this year, originations are going to undergo a significant drop. So I'm sure a lot of loan officers and companies are scrambling right now. So just to get our audience's attention, if um, if you want to make more money this year and keep up uh, volume, underserved communities are where you're going to do that. Can you kind of explain to our audience why helping underserved communities is actually a lucrative path, not just the right thing to do? Absolutely. And I, and I, I want to just take a minute to just touch on the point you just made about the drop in origination. 
who is the drop in origination really affecting? It's affecting people that were had this kind of scarcity mentality, right? So, so during the pandemic, we had a lot of people mass evacuating metropolitan areas for a myriad of reasons. Reason number one, everyone went remote, right? Most of our, our corporate America jobs went from working in a big, huge office downtown to now you're working in your one bedroom studio apartment <laughs> with your husband and your two dogs. And you're like, this is really, really tight. We got to get out of here. So there was kind of this mass exodus uh, to the suburban communities. People moving from all over the place, people leaving both coasts, moving inward, moving to places like Utah, places like Arizona, places like Georgia has, has um, enjoyed a huge increase in its population, extremely getting diversified by a rapid rate right now. Um, but, but these were all people of means, people that had money, people that could make cash offers, people that were coming in offering $50,000, $100,000, $150,000 cash over asking price. Not the low to moderate income borrower that still needs somewhere to live. So now, now your your upper echelon income borrowers, that market is kind of settling down quite a bit. Originations are dropping in that sector because most people have already found a property, and if they haven't found a property, they don't want to play the bidding war anymore, right? They're over that, and the, the the market is getting very hot very quickly it's, it's cool this is the time to target lower to moderate income borrowers now right we're not talking about these crazy uh, offer here offer there offer here offer there things are settling down you have more time on your hands now if you're an originator or a loan processor or an underwriter right maybe providing a little bit more education to these lower income borrowers that are going to need it well now you've got the time to do it because you don't have 60 loans on your desk at one given time maybe you only have six right maybe this is a good time for you to go into these neighborhoods and say hey Prices have stabilized. You know, let, let's start looking now. And this isn't just for, for our mortgage originators. This is for our real estate professionals too, right? Now is the time to start conjuring up those relationships with our lower income borrowers that have the credit profile to buy a home. And they have their down payment assistance resources out there. And the market has calmed enough that they don't feel so nervous that every single offer they put in is going to get rejected. So as far as a business opportunity, now is the time to capitalize. Um, and there's also been an expansion of what's called tiny homes, mm-hmm. a tight, tight home communities, which is like, you know, the row, 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 row of homes. While they may not be attractive, uh, they are affordable. Um, there are many, many uh, builders that have dedicated the last two years to creating new affordable housing solutions for many of our suburban neighborhoods, and they're just coming online. I live in Utah, and I'm seeing them all over the place. It's really, really exciting to see this access to affordable home ownership being extended through our private sector. Now's the time to grab these low to moderate income borrowers, bring them into the fold, utilizing some of the new innovative products that our home home builders are creating. That's great. I really hope our audience is looking into that now, or will start looking into that. So for somebody who is a a white male um, broker or owns a brokerage, what are some steps that they can take to help underserved communities connect with them more and kind of uh, develop a relationship with these people? Well, okay, a couple of things. First and foremost, I would say, are you expanding your workforce to look like the community you would like to serve? 
So if you are a white male broker and you own a brokerage in uh, California somewhere, that's that's huge. Oakland is another example. Um, It's a very high minority population area. I believe Oakland is 60% black and 20% Latino. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere right around there. Is your brokerage 60% black and 20% Latino, right? Mm-hmm. What, what does your employee base look like? If your employee base does not match the racial demographics of the community that you say you want to serve, there's problem number one. Um, issue number two, how are you expanding opportunities to C-suite uh, level positions that also look as diverse as the community you're serving. I'm not just talking about lower entry positions, right? The people that are making new and innovative programs, new and innovative products. How are you going to create new and innovative products if you are a white man, but you want to serve the the Latin community? You need some Latinos to speak to the challenges in the Latin community, right? What does your C-suite look like? The diverse area you want to serve. And then obviously, number three, what are you doing to engage the community? Now, I've heard some amazing things that people are doing to engage the community. They're doing barbecues, taco trucks, going into churches. I've heard about cookouts. I mean, just really innovative ways to kind of bring community members into the fold and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Marco. I've got a new business. I'm, I'm a loan originator. I want to talk to you guys about home ownership. Use social media as a resource. You can get out and literally touch people where you are if you're creating content that speaks to the community. And then obviously grassroots. You want to bring people together so that they can see your face, know you, trust you, and know you have their best interests at heart. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Any other concrete advice maybe for even appraisers, MLOs, anything else that you wanted to add? I would say that I think it's time that we start looking at the mortgage industry as a theory of occupation for our youth that are in college and our young adults that are not in college and seeking employment opportunities. The majority of us, again, myself included, kind of just fell into the mortgage industry, right? I mean, how many people do you know that went to college to be an originator? I don't know any, and I've been in the industry for 20 years, right? But it's time we start changing that. So let's get into our HBCUs, go into our junior colleges and our state colleges, really start talking about origination, about appraisals as a career path. And I, I actually saw a study the other day, I wish I could remember the name of the organization, but it's an organization that is a black appraisal company that goes out and specifically seeks low, lower socioeconomically underserved areas and brings those community members into the appraisal industry and, and, and gives them money, scholarship funds, to go through the appraisal training. That's the other thing that many of our minority community members, they don't have they don't have access to the funding to take these trainings, right? So a lot of them are being sponsored and there's some grant programs out there to do the same. But we need, as a housing sector, a complete housing sector, we need to start taking the mortgage industry seriously as an occupation and not something that people just kind of stumble into. So let's get out there into our HBCUs, our junior colleges, you know, and, and really start talking to community members and bringing people into the fold that are young, hungry, and diverse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've also heard of the Future Housing Leaders Program by Fannie Mae. It's an inter- yeah. a paid internship program that um, seeks out minority students to get into the mortgage industry. Um, they can apply for any company they'd like. It's a summer-long internship. It comes with training courses, certification courses, so people are well-prepared once they start their internship. And and many of them have gone on um, to get a career in the industry. So things like that. Yeah. 
truly exciting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if you guys want to learn more about that, you can check it out at the Future Housing Leaders Program website online. Ty, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. This is Gated Communities, hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by T.G. Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino, and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you've subscribed to Gated Communities so you get future episodes, and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wildside by Saint Society, and the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media. This podcast was brought to you by PennyMac TPO. Visit tpo.pennymac.com to learn more about becoming a partner and starting your journey to greatness.